Hi, I'm Quinn. And I'm Ember. And this is The Fat Pod. Also known as the Fiercely Altered Perspective Podcast. Here we take topics and put our own twist on them, giving you another perspective to stories that you know and love, and some you've never heard about, combining our interests, deep research, humor, and storytelling into one complex podcast. Talking heavy on true crime, plus other great topics such as vampires, cults, cannibalism, aliens, conspiracy theories, mythology, folklore, creepy history, and how the hell we haven't managed to completely kill off the human race. You can subscribe to us anywhere podcasts can be found, simply by searching for Fiercely Altered Perspective. Be sure to follow us on social media, all at The Fat Pod, and join our Facebook group, The Fat Lounge, to join our discussion threads, to give us your perspective on each episode, and get a chance to get a shout out on the next show. Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yes. I've been doing it for about a year. And I don't do it when the kids are around because I don't want to set a bad influence. Erica, what I'm going to tell you is 100% real. I'm not embellishing. Why do you do this on a a live podcast recording? Here it is. When I go to Walmart, and it's just me. One of the first places I will go before I start my shopping is I will go to the baby section. And I'll get a package of diapers. And then I automatically make a beeline to the liquor aisle. And I will take the diapers and put them on top of a case of beer and walk away. Why? So somebody walking down that aisle will look at it and go, Oh my god, they decided to get the beer instead of the fucking diapers. You seriously do this? Uh, yeah. So far, it's ma- mainly been diapers. I've also done it with pacifiers, for baby formula, the packets of bottles. Uh, those one bottle shells where you had the bag. Uh-huh. You could put, yeah, one of those. And um, I've recently dabbled in kids' toys. Next time I go and I'm by myself, I'm thinking I'm going to get a pregnancy test and a King James Bible and put it next to the whiskey. Just so when somebody sees it, they'll go, wow, they just really gave up. And they'll continue their shopping. I am referring to myself as the bad decision bandit of Walmart. (laughs) I feel better. I feel good. You've given yourself a name. Yep. You know you're not supposed to do that. I know. I'm always going to be Snuggle Bunny. But when I walk into the Walmart, I'm the bad decision bandit. (laughs) Speaking of Snuggle Bunny, well, help before we get to that. We'll get let to me, that later. Let me welcome you guys to Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. My name is Erica, and I'm joined by my husband and bad decision bandit of Walmart, Billy. Box of condoms next to wine coolers. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, guys. 
This is a, a confession I was unaware of, and I can't believe my husband does this. What, I, what I'm, I'm kind of thinking of doing next is... And I'm looking at him in the eyes, and I think he's telling the truth. I am telling you the truth. This is a thing I do. <laughs> he's telling the truth, I can tell. I'm thinking oh about God. going and getting like those little travel packets of condoms. Maybe get about like five and then go down the aisles whenever I walk past, or whenever I walk past like an, an elderly person with their shopping cart, whenever they're not looking, I'll just toss it. So <laughs> Does anyone see you putting these items? <laughs> no. Okay. At least there's that. They can't ID you except on, you know, the fucking camera footage. But, and this is in my defense or trying to redeem me, but I am that one guy in line that will ask after the checkout, like, hey, do you have anything for, like, Children's Hunger or, or, or like, Methodist Hospital? And, whatever, you know, and I'll always donate the maximum amount. I do that. I always do that. Yes, you do. He does. I'm a good guy. I just like to have fun. He will buy toys and put them in the donation box at Christmas time. Billy will do that. But he'll also... Throw condoms in your fucking cart when you ain't looking. Yeah. It's... It's a toss Six up. of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> I mean, told a kid to go fuck themselves. We know that story. You just totally went middle of the road with this guy. <sighs> All right, let's do, let's, do this, <laughs> let's do this episode. Let's do some episoding. Let's do some episoding? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, here in America, we have a slang term called going postal, which became a popular phrase in the early 1990s. And this phrase refers to someone becoming uncontrollably angry often to the point of violence and generally at their place of work. And it was coined following a series of incidents starting in 1986 in which a number of United States Postal Service or USPS workers became mass murderers by gunning down managers, co-workers, and sometimes even police or members of the general public. Now, I'm not defending what they do at all, but from what I understand and from what I've heard from customers, most I got a lot of customers that are postal workers, is that it's actually a really hard job. Like, the, the, the process itself is not as difficult, but uh, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of agenda, mm-hmm. and your boss is Time always kind of fucking and... riding you. I'm not saying that doesn't excuse it, but, eh, I get, why, I get why they snap. I'm not saying their snapping is what should have happened or the level or what they did after said snap. But there's a lot of jobs, like me as a nurse, it is one of the most stressful jobs you can have. And I'm not just saying that to try and defend nurses, but after I come home from work, I'm just like frazzled. I- I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. It's very stressful. And I don't go out no, and shoot all my coworkers up. Well, no, but I mean, postal workers, I mean, I know that's where the coin, where the, where the, the term was coined, but... How many fucking mailmen are there in this country as opposed to how many actually did some shit? But the number of employees that go into their workplace and shoot people up, the numbers are drastically higher in the postal service than in other jobs. Yeah, but not all of them. (laughs) And that's kind of why this became a thing, because it seemed to happen a lot in the 1980s. So there are several, as I mentioned, but in this episode, we're going to discuss the one that kind of set it all off. The Edmond Post Office shooting in 1986, committed by postal worker Patrick Henry Sherrill. So on August 20th of 1986 in Edmond, Oklahoma, Patrick would go on a 15-minute long shooting rampage in his workplace, killing 14 post office employees, seriously wounding six more, and then taking his own life. Now, if you do a quick search of the Edmond Post Office shooting, it's 
kind of covered as a man who felt wronged by his managers at work and he wanted revenge. But if you look deeper into his history, there seems to be a whole lot more to his story. So, 44 years earlier, on November 13th of 1941, just weeks before the U.S. entered World War II, Patrick Henry Sherrill was born to farmers in Watonga, Oklahoma, which is about 60 miles or 96 kilometers northwest of Oklahoma City, which most people will know Oklahoma City from the bombing at the Muro Federal Building, which I actually just rewatched the documentary on that last night. But maybe at some point down the road, we'll, we'll cover that. But he was born in Watonga. He had an older brother and an older sister. And the family uh, also had a small cafe in town. Patrick seemed to be an average child in his early years, but he started to have some noticeable changes in the mid-1950s after his parents sold everything and moved the family to Oklahoma City. That's when he started saying, when I grow up, I'm going to go to work and fucking kill everybody. (laughs) And it's unclear if it was just the transition from farm life to urban life or uprooting in the midst of his awkward teenage years, or maybe a little bit of both. Beverly Hillbillies did fine. (laughs) That was a TV show, hon. That wasn't real. That was a docu-series. No, it uh, wasn't. Pretty sure that was a docu-series. Okay. Swimming pools. Movie, movie stars. stars. The Beverly Hillbillies. Come watch this docu-series. That's how the song starts. Right. <laughs> I fucked your ship so much. Well, Patrick, uh, his grades were barely passable at Harding High School where he went. He still had a quote-unquote country boy look, but was already starting to show signs of balding as a teenager. Hey, don't sweat it. You weren't a teenager. But still. He turned to athletics, hoping to have an advantage with his muscularity from farming. He uh, earned a letter in football, but soon moved on to sports that he could succeed at on an individual level, such as track and field. What's it mean when you earn a letter in football? Is it like when you play horse? Did he get an F for football? I was never into sports in high school, and you always put me on the spot like this, but I would assume that it's because you've played so many games or scored so many points. Or so, so the, he did good. On the, on the, on the points game, he got all he, the hit points. He got points. the hit points and the power-ups, and he got and he the got letter. The, he, got all, he got all the Gatorades. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I'm a sportster. Go local sports team and I, or college. I like sports team. Look at these sportsters sportsing with their athletics. If you couldn't tell, we we aren't much into sports. We're fucking dweebs. (laughs) So he got the letter in football, but wanted to try something that he could actually do by himself. So can't you do that by yourself? Catch a fucking ball and run. But you're on a team. You're not getting individual recognition. Yeah, but we all know that one guy back in our hometown that's like, I threw the touchdown pass. It wasn't like, we as a collective did it and we should all be proud. I think even though he was, you know, walking around with a letterman jacket, he still felt kind of awkward and isolated in a way. So he wanted to try something that he could do just himself. Welding. That's what you go to? Graduated class of March from the technical school. That's not what he did. All right. He did track and field. And he it's a good act- thing he did that. That way he's not on a fucking team. <laughs> Stupid. He actually borrowed a discus from the school so he could practice at home each night. And he soon earned another letter for that sport. And then another letter for wrestling. 
Sports? <laughs> Did it spell sports? What are the <laughs> fucking letters? Sportsing, yeah. You know, am I the only listeners? Feel free to let me know on Facebook or Twitter. But whenever you see discus, I'm not the only guy that thinks of Predator Part Two. Am I? <laughs> you laugh. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. <laughs> Every time, like I watch the Olympics, you know, and he just they throw it. I just think of Gary Busey getting cut in fucking half. And... <laughs> I believe we've actually talked about Predator 2 before. Yeah, about On ghost, an episode the, the, the or two. Poltergeist or ghost episode, yeah. Yeah. I made a valid point. If you listen to that episode, you really got to sit through all the rants in the beginning. Because I, I bring up Predator 2, but I make a valid fucking point. He does. I believe that's episode 5? Yeah. Episode 5, sure. Poltergeist. And make sure you listen to the end if you can hear our own EVP that I caught when I was editing, and it creeped me out, and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it now. Anyway, back to Patrick. Getting those fucking letters. Getting his sportsing letters. Because he wants to be an individual like all the other fucking athletes. <laughs> Sports made him finally feel like he was an equal amongst his peers, and one of his coaches would later recall that he seemed to be a quote-unquote normal teenager that never caused any trouble. He took notice of a female student while in his junior year, and he tried to get her to notice him, but she never did. And she definitely would later on down the road. We'll come back to that. Was he friend-zoned? Or was he even that? I don't even think he was that. Ugh. Yeah. The same coach also stated that he had heard Patrick's parents were quote-unquote older people when Patrick was born. And that his father had passed away during Patrick's teen years. Now, I was unable to verify this, but the father is no longer mentioned in the research that I found past this point, so I would assume that that was probably correct. One of the few friends that Patrick had would later claim that Patrick was troubled by a family secret during these years and would eventually tell the friend that his father was mentally ill, going on to say, quote, I'm never going to get married because I don't want to pass on those bad genes to any kids. Now, I was unable to verify this as well, but that's what it was reported that he told his friend. He graduated in June of 1959 and enrolled in Oklahoma University that fall on a wrestling scholarship. He dropped out before even finishing one year. It's not real clear what he did for the next five years, but in January of 1964, Patrick enlisted in the U.S. Marines. I know what he did before that. He sucked at wrestling. I didn't hear <laughs> shit about no fucking letter. <laughs> He adapted. Do you think it's a written letter like they sent it home? It's like your kid's really good at golf. No, you've seen the Letterman jackets where they have the the letter on them. Oh, so now you know. I know there's a letter on a jacket. I thought that stood. For I don't the know school. why you get it. I thought that stood for the school. Uh-uh. Like S, it stands for Southside. I think there's like a varsity team letter, and there's letters on jackets, Billy. That's all I know. We really don't know shit, do we? No. Let's continue with stuff we know. Okay. Patrick adapted well to mil military life, and he qualified as an expert with an M14 rifle. Now, what kind of qualification is that? Can you kind of explain that a little well, bit? Well, they don't use the M14 that much anymore unless you're a sniper. But as far as the the different distinctions go, there's expert and oh, uh, marksman. There's, there's, um, ooh, wow, what is it? It's marksman. What do you have to get to be expert? All like, of them. Not all mi of them not, not like, miss any? I think not miss a one. Or you have a leeway of one or two. See, a lot of times... Oh, oh, uh, I'm sorry. Marksman, sharpshooter, expert. That's that's it. Well, that's it in the Army. Marines, I'm not even too sure. 
Marines, you have to well, be... Well, and this was back in the 60s, too. Marines, you have to be a damn good shot with a rifle. Problem is that we've always found, at least in the Army, was they never switched out the targets that much because they're pop-up targets. We call them Ivan or Green Ivan. Mm-hmm. And it's like a mold shell of a person holding a rifle. And they pop up, you shoot them. They never switch them out. So, so how can they tell how can if they, it's your shot? Well, it, it, it's automated. So if you hit it, the, it'll go down and the computer in the tower says, you know, when you hit this button, it went down. You didn't push the button to make it go down. It went down on its own. That means he shot it. It means he got a hit, mm-hmm. you know. But if you have a target that's riddled with bullet holes, it's not very uncommon to fire a round and that round go through a hole mm-hmm. that was already there. Yeah. I can't tell you and how many times. it won't times register? It won't register because you didn't hit anything. You you hit dead air. And there's been so many times where I've, I've gone to range and I'm like, I fucking hit that. It's 25, 50 meters fucking away from me. I hit that. Yeah. You know, but never showed up. And people are always like, my weapon's fucked up. No, it's probably the range is probably fucked up and they need to do maintenance. Yeah. Rotten bastards. Well, for him to qualify as an expert, I would think he would have to be pretty damn good with the rifle. Yeah, especially an M4. An M4 carries a larger round than M14. A, or M14, I'm sorry. Carries a larger round than an M4, I believe. I believe an M14 is a 7.62 millimeter, which is the same as an AK. Whereas an M4 or an M16 is a 5.56, which really does not have a whole lot of stopping power. It's a little round. You have to pump a lot out. You totally just military nerded out. Sorry. <laughs> Patrick spent most of his enlistment at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, though it was rumored years later that he served in Vietnam, which is false. He did not. When he had to requalify with his weapons, he dropped down from expert to marksman. This didn't bother him, though, because he qualified as expert with the pistol. Oh, and if you're listening out there and you're a Marine, I'm not poking fun at you, but... I do have to tell you, you might not know this, I've met God knows how many Marines that did not know this. Believe it or not, inside the country, there are bases for the Air Force and the Army. Mm-hmm. I've met so many Marines that think... Everything's on the border. Everything's on the border. On the everything's coast. on the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Everything's a camp. Because they're like, where are, you, where are you stationed at? This was in Iraq. This wasn't even a basic. So these guys have been in for a minute... You know, like, where are you stationed? I was like, oh, Fort Carson, Colorado. And he was like, why? And I was like, the Department, where Department of Defense me. fucking told me to go there. I don't know. I'll call my wife and ask why. That's what it? you picked out of your options. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, do you just go home? Are you home? Is that your home? And I was like, well, home is where I lay my head. That's kind of how it works, cowboy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, I was like, are you fucking with me? Like, I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. And he was like, you guys have bases, like, in the country? I said, yeah. <laughs> All over. Everywhere, dude. He said, what about the Air Force? I'm like, yeah, them too. They're usually not far from us. When we lived in Colorado Springs, we had an Air Force base on each side of us and an Air Force Academy north of us. Yeah. So they're everywhere. They're everywhere. We were completely surrounded by military. <laughs> it's not me poking fun. It's just giving you a heads up. Yeah. There's a lot of bases. There are. But see, there are some where I've, I've mentioned that to Marines, and I'm like, I fucking knew that. You think I am stupid? I'm like, no, I'm just saying some of your friends, <laughs> yeah. they didn't fucking know. You didn't give your friends the memo, yeah. so I did. <laughs> Patrick only received badges for his weapons qualifications while enlisted, never earning any awards, ribbons, or medals. But he also never had any kind of disciplinary actions against him. After three years near the end of 1966, he was given a general discharge under honorable conditions, 
which is one step below a full honorable discharge. And Billy and I actually had a discussion about this when I was researching, and I couldn't really figure out why he would receive this, but he had to have shown some kind of unacceptable behavior prior to discharge, but not so unacceptable that he would have received disciplinary action. Did I say that or did Google? No, that's what I ended up finding um, when I looked through the different um, discharge conditions. Yeah, where it's like, you know, you were kind of a dick, but we didn't bring you up on charges mm-hmm. type of thing. So he he did something that he wasn't disciplined for, but it was something that was bad enough that they didn't feel they could give him a full honorable discharge. Back in civilian life, Patrick had difficulty holding a job and decided to enroll in Edmonds Central State University taking general education classes in 1967. He couldn't decide on a major and would constantly drop classes just because they no longer interested him. He ended up with multiple D's and F's, and eventually dropped out completely in the spring of 1970. He had lived with his mother throughout this time, and seemed content to live off his mother's income. He only held a few jobs, each for short periods of time, but he never took responsibility seriously. Now, usually when you get out of the military, you're kind of conditioned to take things seriously and be responsible, right? Yeah, I've had the same job for eight years. I think I've only missed two days. Yeah, I mean... And I work six days a week, sometimes seven. Yeah. So, maybe he was just like, fuck it, my mom's got money. Or maybe he got used to it real quick. Because I know when I got out, there's times I would just sit on the couch like while you were at work or something and just stare at the wall. <laughs> and I'm like, I should be getting yelled at. <laughs> like, there's something... I feel like I need... I feel like I'm in trouble right now because I'm not doing anything and it doesn't click when you become a civilian. Like... You don't have to do shit. You can just mm-hmm. do whatever the fuck you want. And then maybe with some people that hits them really hard, they're like, fuck it. And then mm-hmm. they just, you know. Well, he liked to sit around talking to other people with his ham radio. And one person. I thought for a second he liked to talk to people with his hammer. And I'm like, that's the problem right there. <laughs> that is not how you talk to people. I think that we should cover that, cover that before the shooting. <laughs> one person he met was a member of the Air National Guard who convinced him to visit the recruiting office at Will Rogers Air Force Base, which is now Will Rogers World Airport. He pedaled his bike the 10 miles to the base several times before he was finally accepted in 1976 at age 35. And that's pushing it, right? That's, yeah. 35. And I'm older than that, and I'm just like, ooh, why would you want it at 35? They did it because they were so sad watching him pedal away. They were like... (laughs) Let Ten miles on a, ba- on a bike, he was just like hoofing it. Yeah, you know, the, you know, the, the commander had to be like, well, clearly he's in great shape. He's <laughs> biking ten miles just to get here, and biking back when we say fuck off. Yeah. Well, a female civilian working on the base encountered Patrick several times. Uh, she would later state, "quote I just got the impression, you know, he's a weird guy. He always struck me as one of those men that you know peeped in windows and molested little kids." End quote. That's one hell of a fucking quote. She stated that what gave her those impressions were, quote, just his mannerisms, the way he would look. He's the first man ever in my life, and I have dealt with men all my life and worked with them, that I felt like I was nude standing there talking to him or sitting there. She would tell her male co-workers, quote, don't leave me in the building by myself with him, end quote. She just had this eerie feeling about him. Patrick managed to land a job as a civilian maintenance employee at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City, 
through a military reserve contract. He still lived with his mother, and the house was always neat and tidy. But in 1977, his mother began declining due to Alzheimer's, and by the end of the year, she required full-time care in a nursing facility. Now, with his mother gone, the house became dirty and cluttered, and he became obsessed with his ham radio. He spent all of his money on electronics and gadgets for the ham radio, and soon the house, garage, and yard were full of boxes containing wires, microphones, cables, tubes, and receivers. There were discarded cable reels and rusting equipment everywhere, and five very unsightly radio antennas attached to the roof. Inside the house was more of the same, but included stacks of penthouse, playboy, and paramilitary magazines. He is just so hot. With his ham radio and his antennas. Oh my god. And porn. And porn. (laughs) His mother died in 1978. Of embarrassment. Really. And Patrick let the house fall into disrepair, of course. Yeah, you gotta listen listen to the fucking radio and jerk it. Yeah. That's busy. That takes both hands. He's a busy man. He received a small amount of life insurance from his mother's passing, but he was dismissed from the Tinker Air Force Base. He once again worked jobs for short periods of time, leaving for trivial reasons. Co-workers would describe him as quiet or lonely, never violent or angry. He got a job with the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, as a file clerk. A rumor spread that he had, quote-unquote, exposed himself to a young female temp working there. Many women complained that he was always staring at them and rubbed up against them near the file drawers. Licking their cheeks when they walked by. (laughs) They're so so gross about that. If somebody walks by, you just grab them by the opposite side of their head and you just Uh go, Oh, Gross. Well, he was eventually fired from that job after he allegedly cornered a woman in an elevator and wouldn't let her out. Until she let him lick her face. Super hot now. Just amazing. Patrick left the Oklahoma Air National Guard after serving six years, then immediately joined the U.S. Air Force Reserve in August of 1982. So, he's got to be in his 40s by now. I don't even know how he got into the reserve. Well, I mean... Rules and regulations are made at certain times. I know, but still, I mean, they have strict guidelines now about ages and stuff when you can get in. When was this? 1982. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. He felt a sense of identity attending the regular meetings and drills, and the active duty periods filled in during his idle periods in his life. Aside from tinkering with his ham radio, Patrick enjoyed bicycling... As we've already discussed. He loves the fuck out of riding that bike. (laughs) Which was his major mode of transportation. He joined group bike tours, usually without invitation. He just showed the fuck up. Who's going to stop you from riding a bike if a bunch of people are riding bikes? (laughs) Well, he would show up without the necessary provisions for long distance biking. There are times where I've considered murdering people in my own family just for the the Pee Wee Herman's bike. Well, these are like... Long-term biking, multiple days, and he would show up and wouldn't have, like, the food or the tent. He would just, like, sleep underneath Very, like, hey, campers and stuff. Like, hey, guys, me too. Yeah. Type of, just yeah. tag along. Third wheel. But <laughs> Very true. I need to get a bike. That year, he applied for the USPS. He was put on the payroll as a multiple position letter sorter. His condition for hire was that he qualified for the job within 90 days by demonstrating competent performance and passing specific tests. 
Yeah, a lot of places are like that. Patrick, of course, fell short of both and resigned on day 89. Oh. <laughs> His sister then helped him get a job with the Oklahoma City chapter of the American Cancer Society in 1984, as she was the organization's director of professional services. But working in the stockroom for minimum wage just wasn't cutting it for good old Pat, and he quit after five months. He attended an extensive training course to become a firearms instructor at Lackland Air Force Base with the 507th Air Reserves. It was supposedly one of the best courses available for instructor development in small arms training. An officer stationed there would later recall that he could not understand how Patrick could have completed the course after observing him. He said Patrick wasn't productive in the classroom and he seemed smart but often acted slow. People didn't want to associate with or help him and a rumor spread that he was gay. But this officer said he didn't see anything to substantiate the rumor. What's being gay got to do with anything? Well, you know, back in the 80s, people, gay people had kind of this stigma where everyone thought that they were something that they weren't. So I guess at the time they considered that a quote-unquote bad thing, but that's just stupid. <laughs> hey, I, I, I salute gay people. That's amazing. I can't tell you how many times I've jerked off and looked down and I'm like, that's ah, so ugly. You know, they're like, they're they're the they ones. They overcome. They really shoulder the burden. They're they're like, fuck yeah, man, bring it. Oh, I couldn't I couldn't do it. They're doing things I could never, I can't do. So, hats off, guys. That's fucking great. Well, this officer said he didn't seem gay to him, but he also said he quote wouldn't want Cheryl to babysit any kids end quote. And he felt that Patrick was the type of person you wouldn't want to push too far, quote, as he might knock your head off. But the officer did admit that on the range with the 45 pistol, Patrick was an excellent shot. A man named Vincent Stubbs, Vincent Stubbs, was assigned to the same barracks with Patrick during the nine-week course, and the two became friends. Stubbs. They would eat Vincent meals. Stubbs. <laughs> they would eat meals together and talk about their lives. Stubbs described Patrick as, quote, the most precise person that he'd ever known. He recalled, though, that Patrick disliked one of the female instructors for some reason, and he took every opportunity he had to give her a hard time, though how he did wasn't really explained. He also said Patrick read a lot and would read the Bible every night before bed. Yeah, that's not creepy. <laughs> say that before you say, like, they think He likes gay. guns, and he reads the Bible every night. I could picture myself in the 80s, like, I think he's gay. And I, I, me, I know me. I've been with me my whole life. As a kid, I'd be like, "So what? Let's play Ninja Turtles." Like I wouldn't care, mm-hmm. you know. But they, they could also be like, "He reads the Bible every night before he goes to bed." I'd be like, "Yeah, fucking what? <laughs> Stay away from him." He he has a Bible and every word is highlighted. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, back at home on Northwest Twenty Seventh Street. Neighbors began to describe Patrick as odd. Neighbor Louise Eastman stated, quote, He was a nosy kind of guy, always wanting to know what everyone else was doing. She said he would take walks late at night, pacing up and down the sidewalks and stopping to stare into windows. Sometimes he would even walk up to the houses to get a closer look. Several people in the neighborhood called the police about the peeping, but he never got arrested. Another neighbor corroborated Louise's story, saying, quote, Pat would stand out in the street and look in windows, but the police never did anything, quote, because Cheryl was only looking and never tried to break in a house. Pretty sure that wouldn't stand today. 
Yeah, or it's like... You're trespassing. There. There's one right there. Yeah. And nowadays, I'll fuck around and get you shot. Yeah, or get hit with stalking charges. I'm not a big gun nut, although sometimes it may sound like it. I'm not a big, huge gun nut. But I own a gun. I own a few. And if somebody was staring into my window from my front porch, they'd get shot. Mm-hmm. You don't do that. That's weird. Yeah. And that's why everyone described him as odd. He is. He's an odd duck that reads the Bible every night. Well, this neighbor eventually bought an air conditioner so she could close her windows and drapes at night just to keep Pat from peeping in. She was like, fuck this. I'm going to shell out the money. Put a fucking air conditioner in that window so he can't fucking see me. They're not cheap today. Yeah. Patrick got a pit bull and it was usually kept in the house. But one day it got out and attacked a neighbor's much smaller terrier. Patrick ran out when he heard the scuffle and saw the terrier's owner kicking at the pit bull to try to get it off of her dog. Patrick began loudly berating the neighbor, furious with her for kicking his dog that was attacking her dog. They had to be so mad that I stabbed their dog with a fucking katana. <laughs> yeah. Well, they eventually got his dog to release the terrier, which lived, but I couldn't find out if there was actual resolution about this, if he ever paid any, like, restitution for the vet bills or anything. But yeah, he was offended that she was trying to get his dog off of her dog by hitting it. Now, don't get me wrong, I love dogs, but if I had a little tiny dog and my dog was outside and a big, huge fucking dog ran up and started just got it by the mouth and started wet, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whipping it back and forth, I'd freak out. But at the same time, I'd be like, I'll miss you. Like, I know <laughs> the score. I know what's going on. This is nature. Yeah, well, it's surprising her dog actually lived. It'd be like a chihuahua. Getting run up on by a Great Dane, you know. Mm-hmm. At, at, you know, you'd be sad while it's happy, but at the same time, you're like, "I'm glad I'm not that fucking Chihuahua." God, that's fucking rough. Yeah. <laughs> be brave. <laughs> Around this be, time, be brave, Sprinkles. You'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, just go limp, wet yourself. That's what I do. Yep. <laughs> that's what Billy does. Everyone isolate that. Yeah, it'd be like <laughs> if I'm hiking with a friend and he gets attacked and mauled by a bear. I'd be like, "Damn." Sucks to be you, man. That's fucking awful. I'm going to call your mom. Okay, bye. I'm going to tell you you were awesome. You were an awesome friend. I'm going to run. I've stayed and talked way too long. The bear's looking at me now. (laughs) Gotta go. Later, Tater. Around this time, the cute girl Patrick had noticed his junior year was now married and moved into his neighborhood. Shortly after moving in, she started to get obscene phone calls from someone with a familiar voice she couldn't quite place. Well, she eventually saw Patrick around and connected that he was the strange boy from high school who was now harassing her. She remembered that Patrick, quote, had an older looking face because he was already starting to go bald. The first time she received a call after figuring out who it was, she said, Pat, quit calling me. And the calls immediately stopped. You know, a couple things ran through my head there is like, is she piece it together because like she, she goes to the grocery store and he's standing by the little quarter put a quarter in the horse or rocket ship thing you know what i mm-hmm. mean and he's just standing next to his arms down just like oh. <laughs> you're creepy but he's wearing his old leather jacket that's way too small and he's like hey <laughs> and she's like i know that hey i know that hey because I get a call and I was like, hey, <laughs> it's him. I fucking know it's him. It's fucking you, Pat. Do you think when she was like, Patrick, stop calling me. Like, you think he hung up and closed his blinds? <laughs> I was like, fuck, they know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Or did he just go, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hung up the phone. That would be me. I'd be such a bad murderer. <laughs> I would suck so much Oh, I am it. so sorry. Like, Billy, stop calling. I'm like, fuck. Beep. <laughs> there went that. Well, the neighbors on 27th Street generally thought of Pat as a nuisance, but not necessarily a threat or dangerous. Kids in the neighborhood taunted him and called him Crazy Pat, a name they created from his paranoia and accusations that they were always laughing at him. It's Pat. <laughs> if he saw a group of kids giggling or laughing outside, Pat would march over to their parents' houses to demand that they put their foot down and stop these damn kids from laughing at him. That's cool. I can kind of respect that. I, I, I respect a kid that would walk over and be like, Hey, Miss um, Morrison, how about you get your head out of your fucking ass and raise your fucking kids, you piece of shit? Kids can't fucking laugh. No, they can't, but I like that. I like that. <laughs> he didn't even go to they the kids. They were minding their own business. He didn't he... even go to the kids and throw rocks at him or nothing. He was just like, I got this. And beat the doors like, Mr. Flanagan, are you going to quit being a piece of shit and get off your ass and be dad? Put the fucking newspaper down. <laughs> Parent your children, you fuck. Yeah, except they weren't taunting him all the time. Sometimes they were just laughing because they're kids and having a good time. Well, the parents would humor him for the time being and be like, Okay, Pat, we'll take care of it. And then eventually the kids would start taunting him again from a safe distance, of course. (laughs) Call him a narc. (laughs) In October 1984, just shy of 43 years old, His enlistment with the Air Force Reserve came to an end, and he went straight back to the Oklahoma Air National Guard. He joined the 137th Squadron as a Sergeant Combat Arms Instructor. In April of 1985, he applied again to the USBS, this time in Edmond using the extra points awarded by the USBS for veteran qualification. That still exists to this day. I got got two interviews from him. Cool. Yeah. I don't know shit about mail. (laughs) And they know I didn't know. And they were like, you're a veteran. We have to interview you. And I was like, yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this time he passed the exams, both written and physical. And no psychological exam was done, but I'm unclear as to whether that was a requirement or not at the time. He was hired as a part-time letter carrier, which basically means that you work for an hourly wage and aren't guaranteed specific hours. It's more like what we would consider PRN in the medical field, you know, we'll call you when we need you type of deal. But there was a high volume of mail that year, and Patrick usually put in a full 40 hours each week, plus some overtime, making around $13,000 that year, which is about $30,000 today. So not bad bad for (laughs) part-time. Patrick performed his duties adequately, but he was still awkward around others and didn't mix well. But as luck would have it, Patrick would run into his military friend and probably only friend, Vincent Stubbs, during his two weeks of active duty at McCord Air Force Base in Washington. Patrick talked about his job with the Postal Service, saying he was proud but unhappy with how he was being treated, and that he didn't like having to stay in one place sorting for long periods of time. Stubbs invited Patrick to tour the Seattle area with him and his family, and to then join them for dinner at a relative's house. Stubbs said Pat seemed truly grateful, saying, quote, No one has done this for me before. Stubbs would later describe Patrick as, quote, The loneliest man I have ever known. Well, things weren't going so well at work come fall. In October, the supervisor of mails and delivery, Bill Bland, 
signed a letter that was given to Patrick suspending him for seven calendar days for, quote, failure to discharge your assigned duties conscientiously and effectively. It stated, On September 19, 1985, you did fail to protect mail entrusted to your care as evidenced by the fact you left two trays of mail and three parcel post items unattended overnight at 601 Vista Lane. Your failure to discharge your assigned duties conscientiously and effectively resulted in one-day delivery of approximately 500 pieces of mail, which have been entrusted to your care. And I know how I get when I order something from eBay and it has an estimated delivery date and it doesn't show up that day. I'm in a murderous fucking rage. <laughs> Just five months after that, Patrick was given another letter and suspended for 14 calendar days. It read in part, On March 31st, 1986, you acted in an unprofessional manner by telling a customer that you did not need her help in finding the apartment mailboxes and did not care if the tenants received mail or not. The customer reported this incident and stated that you were very rude to her, adding that she was only trying to help you find your way around the complex. You again acted in this manner. The customer reported by phone and customer complaint form that you sprayed his dog with dog spray. The dog was and is behind a five-foot fence with a locked gate. When questioned about the incident, you admitted that you have walked past him many times in the past and was fully aware of the dog's presence behind the fence. You also stated that you had just received a new can of dog spray and was not sure it would work but decided to use it on this dog anyway. You also asked the customer when questioned by him about the incident if he wanted his mail delivered or not. Just spray a tree outside if you want to find out it works. You don't have yeah. to technically try it out on a dog. Yeah. It'd be like if you bought pepper spray and like, okay, honey, I'm going to I'm gonna mug the fuck out of you right now. I want to see if this works. No, just spray it outside. Please don't mace me. No, I'm not. I'm just saying. Hey, thanks. I was saying if, like if you did. Please don't mace me. Okay, I won't. You should say please don't mug me. Please don't mug me. You watch your fucking back. I won't mug you. We're poor. <laughs> I, I know what you got on you. The letter continued, This type of service seems consistent with you, which should be your, past performance evidenced by a suspension given you on October 2nd, 1985, and several discussions and a letter of warning. This type of behavior will not and cannot be tolerated. Patrick admitted to his bosses what he had done, saying he was testing the dog spray, as the can he had the day before did not work when the dog barked and growled at him, which still isn't a reason to spray a dog secured behind a fence. He wasn't doing nothing. He told another story outside of work, telling people that his managers were, quote, making book on him, which he implied they were racking up every infraction, no matter how small, in an attempt to get rid of him. And maybe they were, but he still sounds like he was being a jackass at his job, so they had every reason to. Don't spray the poor fucking dog, dude. Yeah. He claimed that his supervisor was timing him on his route on days when he had a heavy load of mail to deliver, but timing a female worker on the same route on days when the load was light. But many co-workers would later say things like, quote, He didn't appear to be too upset, but Pat never did appear upset over anything. Or, quote, You'd never know what was going on inside his head. One privilege of being a member of the Air National Guard Marksmanship Unit was the ability to check out weapons to keep at home. You can do that? Evidently you could in the 80s. Man. On April 5th, Pat checked out a Colt 45. In late July, he did his two weeks of active duty in England. During that time, he complained to an officer that he was, quote, really getting hassled 
by his supervisors over his request for a military leave. He emphasized that he needed the documentation proving he was serving his two weeks with the guard, and the officer assured him he would get it. When the unit arrived in a town near London, Patrick was given a single room on base, while most other members were given double rooms off the base in civilian quarters. He requested a change to an off-post double room, but no one wanted to bunk with him. They don't have to do that. They don't have to do what? Give you a double outside of base. You're a single fucking guy. You go where they put you. This isn't like you can just request better accommodation. You didn't pay for shit. They flew you there. They housed you. You can't be like, you can't go to like your first sergeant or whatever it is in the Air Force and be like, I'm sorry, uh, sergeant. I don't like these accommodations. I like something better. And I'll go to Trivago and complain. No, no. It's like, well, um, do you have a bed? Do you have a cover? Do you have a pillow? Well, then shut what they call the fuck up and go to fucking bed. Well, maybe it was like an odd number of people and he was all butthurt and felt left out and they tried to accommodate him and everybody was like, fuck no, I'm not bunking with that guy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Life's a harsh mistress. We're just going to have to fucking adapt. Yeah. Go to bed and shut the fuck up. They returned back to Oklahoma in early August and Pat was disappointed in the trip. One of his relatives stated, quote, He expressed disappointment in the trip, calling it unsuccessful and placing blame on his commanding officer. He said the CO had them doing menial, trivial tasks, and that he restricted their free time for sightseeing off base. Um, hey Pat, you're there for fucking two weeks of training not to fucking sightsee in the villages of England. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, make a mental note of where you fucking are. And then go home and then take a vacation from your civilian job, fly the fuck out there, and then go to your fucking sightseeing. Yeah. You're, you're not, there for a purpose. Yeah. You're there for training for the military. You don't get to just lollygag around. Yeah. Could you imagine when I was stationed at Fort Carson, if I went to our first sergeant, to my first sergeant, who is now the sergeant major of the army, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was my first sergeant. Oh, he's awesome. Anyway. I went to him like, hey, Top, um, the wife and I really want to go to Pike's Peak. You're going to the range today. Yeah, so Pike's Peak? No, no, it doesn't fucking work that way. (laughs) Yeah, that would not happen. Although we did go to the Pike's Peak Zoo, and it was pretty dope. That was pretty cool. Except for the peacock that tried to kill us. It didn't try and kill us. It held its ground. Yeah? Yeah. Eh, It's coming right at me. (laughs) I never had deep fried peacock. Just trying to find out what that'd be like. <laughs> well, this relative also stated that Patrick started to lose interest in the military. Because they didn't do what he wanted to fucking do. <laughs> which he had always enjoyed prior to this. He complained more and more about the post office and his bosses writing him up, saying none of it was his fault that the mail wasn't pre-sorted correctly or the people complaining had grudges against him for unknown reasons. It wasn't his fault, guys. He didn't do nothing wrong. He's a victim. Yeah. Get off his ass. He stated that he wanted to transfer to another department, maybe in maintenance or something more technical than sorting or delivering mail. Just days after returning from his two weeks in England, Patrick checked out another gun from the chief of the Air National Guard marksmanship team, a Remington 45 caliber semi-automatic. The next weekend, before he had target practice with his group, he collected his authorized 200 rounds of ammunition. 
you could check out a fucking gun and get 200 rounds of ammunition from the military. I don't think you do that shit no more. Yeah, probably not. Money's tight, dude. And from what I understand, you were there. That's like one of the guidelines. If you if you own a gun, you do have to surrender that gun to the armorer, which kind of makes it pointless if you're in the military to own a fucking gun. But maybe that's just on post or something. If you have an, mm-hmm. if you own a nine, I don't think they can do that. I like come to your house and be like, you have to yeah. surrender this. But I can't see even if I lived on post in the barracks and I had like a sig that I had to turn into the to the armor and be like, I'm gonna go to the range today. Give me two hundred rounds. I'm gonna be like, fuck you. Go to Walmart. <laughs> I'm not yeah, giving you our it's shit. Right up the road, over there. There are people in Iraq and Afghanistan right now who really need these bullets that you're about to shoot at paper. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. On August 19th, co-workers at the Edmund Post Office saw Patrick in a glass-paneled supervisor's office. Two supervisors, Rick Esser and Bill Bland, could be seen talking to Pat. No one could hear exactly what was being said, but one employee stated, quote, It was obvious that Pat Sherrill was being reprimanded. I could see the look on his face, which struck me as being very strange, eerie. Another co-worker would later recall a conversation the week prior on the 12th, in which he was alone with Pat in the break room. Quote, He was angry at management over some annual leave he had to account for. He said Bland didn't think that he, Pat, was much to worry about, but he'd be sorry. I said we all knew that Pat had been having trouble with management. He said they'll be sorry and everyone would know. And everyone did on August 20th. It wasn't quite 7 a.m. on that muggy August morning when Patrick Sherrill parked in the employee parking lot of the Edmund Post Office, placed his mail delivery satchel over his left shoulder, and walked up to the building with a pistol in his right hand. Inside, over 50 people were at their workstation, sorting mail and doing various tasks. Pat walked in and approached a table where employee Mike Rockney was talking with Supervisor Rick Esser and started firing. Another employee, Mike Bigler, heard the popping noise and thought it was just firecrackers, a practical joke, and he continued working. But he looked up and saw Mike and Rick lying in pools of blood and then realized this was not a joke. He ran for one of the exits. Quote, I was 50 or 60 feet from it and was shot in the back, felt a stinging sensation. I just played dead. Cheryl kept walking around several times, just went around shooting methodically, saying nothing. Some of the clerks were huddled in the post office box area. He went up to them and shot seven rounds, and they were all screaming, end quote. This is nothing to joke about, because it's a mass shooting. One of, the fir- one of the first ones we really had, well, not one of the first ones. I think, um, oh my God, you know this better than I do, Clock Tower. Mm-hmm. But he was shot in the back, and it really made me think just in a Forrest Gump. Something bit me! You know, and- <laughs> Been him right in the buttocks. Employee Daryl Fessler looked up in time to see Mike Bigler get shot. He said Pat, quote, just turned in a circle shooting at random. He went towards the front lobby shooting and we ran out the back. He followed, still firing. Pat sprayed the parking lot area with bullets and the senior carrier, Jerry Pyle, was hit and killed instantly. While Pat was distracted out the back door... Mike Bigler jumped up and sprinted out the other door that Pat had entered through with his hands over his head. He figured if, you know, police were already on the scene for some reason that he would get shot by friendly fire. So he instinctively just put his hands up. It's good thinking. Several employees also fled, shouting, run, get out, he's got a gun. 
Pat then came back into the building, locking the back doors behind him to try and trap people in. Employee Hubert Hammond was at Station C-13 when he saw Pat approaching Station C-9, where co-worker William Nimmo was. William was shot twice and dropped, critically wounded, but alive. Pat raised the gun towards Hubert, but didn't fire for some reason. Hubert then turned and ran, making it to outside safety, but hearing gunshots behind him. Two employees, Phil Crabtree and Larry Wilson, managed to pull William Nimmo outside and into the backseat of a vehicle and was driven to the hospital by Wilson. Inside, Supervisor Patty Husband, yeah, her last name is Husband. There are people with the last name Husband? <laughs> yeah. You know what's weird? Patty's is, one of them. Yeah. Is, you know what's weird is like your last name actually like begins with like what you did. Mm-hmm. Smith what your family did. And, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff. Makes me think about Hancock, but Husband. Yeah. So, well, we were we were good at being husbands. husbands. <laughs> Hi, I'm in Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get that joke, you're too young. Inside, Supervisor Patty Husband began yelling at the employees in the southwest sector where they had been sorting and stacking mail in three rectangular bays. She shouted for them to get down as she crouched in a bay with the clerks Betty Jarrett and Thomas Shader. Pat stepped past his first two victims lying on the floor and headed towards the southwest bays. Debbie Smith, an employee hiding nearby, later recalled, quote, The supervisor yelled to get down. I was trying to hide in the second box section. Pat Sherrill went to the first box section. I heard Patty Husband say, No, Pat, no. And then he shot the gun. Patty, Betty, and Thomas, who were all huddled there together, were all shot and killed at close range. For some reason, Pat passed right by where Debbie Smith was hiding and went to the third box section where five employees huddled. Debbie made a run for it but heard the gun popping as she ran. Patty Chambers, Judy Denny, Patricia Gabbard, Patty Welch, and Jonna Graygert Hamilton were all shot with Pat's 45 caliber pistol. All five women died. Ironically, Judy Denny was the quote-unquote new lady in the post office, After recently moving from Georgia's Atlanta main post office, she had come to the safety of Edmond following a 1985 shooting in Atlanta in which postal employee Stephen Brownlee had killed two co-workers with a pistol. That was some final destination shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was. (laughs) As Pat headed back towards the front, continuing to shoot at people, Richard Tompkins ran for the back door and managed to get one of the double doors open. He ran to a nearby apartment complex to try to alert someone to call the police. But when that failed, he flagged down someone driving by and had them take him to the police station, which was just two blocks away. So all this time, authorities had still not been notified that this was even happening. You would think there'd be one person walking by the post office that stopped a cop somewhere and was like, I think there's firecrackers. Somebody's playing a practical joke. Yeah, something. I got a letter in there. It might catch fire. (laughs) That would be their concern. Well, I mean, you know, you think it's firecrackers. If I hear firecrackers in a post office, I don't think I'm going to be like, oh, damn, my mail's going to get burnt up. That's where me and you differ, and that's why our marriage is failing. Why'd you have to tell me that while we're recording? Our marriage is Why, dead. Billy? Our marriage is dead. I order from eBay a lot. So if I heard fireworks go off in a post office, I'm like, somebody get in there. I'm going in. I'd be the guy that got shot. Ooh, I want to see him. I, that's where we differ. <laughs> I'd be the guy that got shot running with a fire extinguisher. Talk about my phone case! 
And then realized, like, oh, that's not firecrackers at all. That's a gun. <laughs> he died holding a fire extinguisher. For firecrackers that didn't exist. That, for some fucking reason, was out of pressure. It never got checked. He never could have done anything anyway. <laughs> he never had a chance. He lay there like a slug. That'd be... <laughs> That'd be like, on my tombstone, too. How'd that happen? Wrong place, wrong time? Wrong place, wrong time, wrong situation, wrong decision, wrong movement. eBay. (laughs) (laughs) This is eBay's fault somehow. Thanks, eBay. So, meanwhile, Pat approached an office on the north wall of the building where he found rural mail carrier Kenneth Morey hiding. Kenneth was shot and killed just one month before his 50th birthday. Pat then headed toward the break room but found another rural carrier, William Miller, who just that morning passed around a plate of homemade cookies to his co-workers. Aww. Think Pat gave him a pass for handing out cookies? Nope. He killed Miller and kept on towards the northeast break room. Inside, he found rural carrier Leroy Phillips and killed him as well. And he probably stepped over him and he was like, thanks for the cookies. That was just my assumption, but... Actually, it probably didn't happen anything like that because... He just walked in and started firing. He so he a, probably wasn't even there when the was, cookies were passed he, around. He was probably in a homicidal rage and didn't have time to even think about the cookies. Yeah, I think this would be considered a homicidal rage. Yeah. Uh, like, if anything, it'd be like, Raisins don't belong in cookies! Or some shit. I don't mind raisins and cookies. Oatmeal raisin cookies? Mm-hmm. They're all right. What? Why are you Billy looking, approved. Why are you looking at me like that? Now we know. Billy likes raisins in his cookies. I'm not saying I like them. Some of you are now going to hate him. I'm not saying... (laughs) I'm not saying if you get a chance, sprinkle some raisins in the fucking cookies. But I'm saying... It's still a fucking cookie. (laughs) Cookie's a cookie, man. I'm not going to waste a cookie. (laughs) I agree. But some people are going to be like, oh, fuck you guys. I don't like pineapple on pizza. I've never tried it. I take that back. Pineapple, ham, and barbecue sauce really isn't that bad. And everybody's really giving it a bad rep. There. Now people are really going to hate you. That's fine. I'll accept it. He's a good guy, guys. Really. Even if he does stash condoms and shit in the liquor aisle and baby bottles. and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can keep going. Keep going. What else no. do I do? I just told you. Yeah. I also... And you tell little girls to fuck off. I tell little girls to go fuck themselves. I flipped off a kid once. And, like I said, you know, I, you know, condoms and elderly people's carts. Mainly elderly. Or that one where the woman or man knows how to clearly walk, but they're taking the cart, and then I have to walk past a guy in a wheelchair who's missing a leg. Like, yeah, yeah. You're getting KY thrown in your fucking basket when you're trying to desperately reach for those goddamn solo cups that I know you can get up and get. Okay. I'm fighting a good fight. That took a dark turn. Ask me to help you get ketchup, motherfucker. I saw you walk in. He really is a good guy, guys. Sometimes. I do toys for tots. (laughs) Okay. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Well, by this time, police and ambulances finally were starting to arrive on the scene, and they were tending to the wounded that had made it out. Police surrounded the building and could see the man with a gun inside through the windows. 
One officer said, quote, A couple of minutes later, we saw a subject inside the post office walk up and bar the back doors, look out the window for an instant, then disappear from view. The man was bald-headed and there was blood on his forehead. Patrick began pacing back and forth inside the building for several minutes. Then, quote, At approximately 7.15 or 7.20, I heard the distinct sound of a muffled gunshot, end quote. Patrick Henry Sherrill had walked to the center of the post office and fired his gun one last time into his own head. His own bald head. They keep pointing out that the man's fucking bald. There's nothing wrong with being bald. <laughs> the SWAT team entered the post office once there was silence and no movement noted inside the building. They found Pat lifeless on the floor from an apparent suicide. Altogether, seven women and seven men were killed, eight men if you include Patrick Sherrill. Six others were seriously wounded and taken for emergency treatment. They are William Nemo, Jean Bray, Michael Bigler, Steve Vick, Judy Walker, and Joyce Ingram. He shouldn't be fucking counted. If you go on a mass shooting and shoot everybody because you're basically, in my opinion, and I'm not a professional or anything like that, in my eyes, you threw a fucking hissy fit mm-hmm. and decided to kill everybody. You're not a man. You're not counted as a fucking man. You're not counted as a human being. And furthermore, you're a piece of shit for fucking killing yourself. Fuck you. And that's I, and that's why I want to say you you won't even fucking face it. Consequences. Yeah, you. That's the most cowardly fucking shit I can mm-hmm. think of. Not. Suicide. If somebody commits suicide, they have their reasons for committing suicide. And yeah, that's different. That's different. But taking other people out with you. But like, if you kill all these people, and then you're sitting in an office, and you're like, "All oh, these people are really mad," and then you fucking choke down a fucking barrel. Fuck you. You're a fucking piece of shit. I agree. You're not a man. You're not a human. Well, one of the supervisors that had reprimanded Pat the previous day, Bill Bland had actually overslept that morning, thereby missing the entire shooting. That was just some serious fate right there. The rampage lasted in total about 15 minutes. On May 29, 1989, a memorial statue and fountain were placed outside the main entrance to the post office. Called the Yellow Ribbon Memorial, it features a bronze statue of a man and a woman standing on the fountain center base, holding the ribbon that is attached to the bow on the base. The fountain has 14 water jets to represent the 14 victims, and their names are listed on a plaque on front of the base. That's nice. Although this wasn't the first case of murder in a workplace or even in a post office, it was by far the worst and is considered the inspiration for the phrase going postal. Many more high-profile post office shootings followed, especially in the 90s. In 1991, there were two, one in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and one in Royal Oak, Michigan. 1993 saw two more in Dearborn, Michigan and Dana Point, California. There was a postal shooting in Montclair, New Jersey in 1995, one in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1997, and one in 2006 in Goleta, California. And given our nation's record for mass shootings, there's probably many more to come. Which is fucking sad. Yeah. And that, my friends, is going postal. That's what it means here in the good old U.S. of A. Because evidently, people in the post service go fucking crazy. (laughs) And want to take people out with them. So, uh, of course, we want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. And 
I forgot to mention in the beginning of the episode, you've heard um, the promo that we played from the Fiercely Altered Perspective podcast, The Fat Pod, with Ember and Quinn. Some of you may know uh, them from the original Gory Gals and the Color Me Dead podcast. Ember was uh, one of the original hosts, and she has now started a podcast with her husband, Quinn. And they cover true crime and creepy shit, and it's really good. Please find them on your favorite podcast app and listen to them. Subscribe. Uh, It would really mean a lot to us. They're one of our good podcast friends, and we think you guys would enjoy them. And if you liked what you heard from us, please get on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps with the visibility of the show and makes us easier to find. We know it can be a pain in the ass, but we would really appreciate it. If you would like to support the show, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash martinis in the macabre and make a pledge. Even $1 gets you access to our patron-only audio each month, and for just a few dollars more, you can get some exclusive goodies. And once again, thank you to our patrons, Kate, Hunter, Cooper, and Bridget. You guys have our undying love. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Martinis and the Macabre and on Twitter at Martini underscore Macabre. And be sure to follow our fan page on Facebook as well at Friends Who Like Martinis and the Macabre. We love interacting with you guys and feel free to post whatever you like on the pages and to share our posts. And hello to Amanda Markstone. Hi, she Amanda. A Hi, Amanda. Yeah, remember I showed you the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hi, Amanda. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And thank you for the compliments that you guys were laughing hysterically in bed. <laughs> you punched our kid. I didn't punch him. He ran into my hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what every let's not relive our Applebee's outing. Okay, I didn't hit our child. Yeah, he made sure everyone in that restaurant knew it. Oh, she was stressed. And she was having a bad day, and I fell down. <laughs> I was kind of asking for it. Uh... He said my mom didn't hit me. Anyway, <laughs> visit our website, martinisinthemacabre.com, to learn a little bit about us, listen to our complete episode catalog, or to listen to all of the songs created by Minimus Noah that we use at the end of each episode. And be sure to find his first official album release called Views. It's on iTunes, Spotify, and many other music providers. We would appreciate it so much. Uh, for any questions, comments, topic suggestions... Just want to say hi. Shoot us an email at martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com or you can use the contact page on the website. And like we said before, go check out the Fat Pod. And I do want to say this before we wrap up this episode. We have had one of our listeners get inspired by the story of Billy Snuggle Bunny Jones. And her name is Amelia. Amelia. She is from north of the border up in good old Canada. And she has actually written a short story that was inspired by Snuggle Bunny and kind of gives us an idea of what his beginnings may have been like. (laughs) And when she sent it to us, we were like, this is fucking awesome and we have to share it. So we asked Amelia to let us use it on the show and if she would be willing to read it on the show We were actually supposed to Skype in with her, and I ended up having to take Noah to the ER for this 
horribly infected and grown toenail. Long story short, we couldn't meet up with her. But she did go ahead and record it and send us the audio. And she has told us many times that English isn't her first language and to be kind. And I think she did an awesome I job. I think she sounded perfectly fine. Yeah, it sounds great. So we are going to play that for you guys instead of playing a song from Noah. Because it was just so awesome that we had to share it with you guys. And actually, her inspiration that she got from Snuggle Bunny has led her to write the story, which has now inspired me to put up my vote because we've tried to decide for a very long time what we could call you guys because we don't like calling you fans and listeners seem so impersonal. And I vote that we call you guys our Snuggle Bunnies. Our Snuggle Bunnies. I think Billy agrees with me on this. So if you guys like that idea, please get on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you can. Write us an email. Let us know if you agree with that. And we would gladly call you guys Snuggle Bunnies from this point forward. And just don't don't fucking forget. All right, guys? I'm the OG. <laughs> he is the OG. <laughs> I love this. I love that snuggle bunny jones has uh, billy snuggle bunny it's jones, created a movement it's created his it's it's a, he's his own character now from uh, emily willinga's art her, mm-hmm. her perfect beautiful artwork yeah especially with the martini glass while he's he's holding it you know yeah so we've had visual Amelia, representation yeah. and now we've and now Amelia had, came up with like a backstory yeah this is amazing and if you guys want to do something inspired by snuggle bunny Anything you'd like, we would love to see it or hear it. I mean, we think this is amazing to have this kind of interaction with you guys. We're loving it. So, we're going to play. I have a request, actually, before you play it. I am requesting some artwork. Okay. Okay. All right, listeners. If you remember... Snuggle bunnies. It's not voted in yet. They haven't agreed yet. You guys are going to be snuggle bunnies in my mind. We're just going to call you Snuggle Bunnies from now on, so just get used to that. <laughs> the Dynamite Farmer. Uh-huh. If I, It sounds morbid, but we're morbid. That's we kind are. of how we roll. Yeah. Some artwork of horses tied together. <laughs> Saying, what are you doing with that hammer? <laughs> yeah. And so two horses tied together at the legs in a wheelbarrow full of dynamite. I would love to see that. <laughs> that is pretty morbid, hun. Nothing, nothing having to do with bombing the school. I don't want to see that. No. I don't want to see that. Actually, Unless it involves kids flying around like they're wizards, like I envisioned. Okay, honestly, Erica <laughs> can do what she wants. But with if, planks of wood. If I see, everywhere. if I see a picture of a of a school blowing up, I will delete the picture. I don't want to look at that. But. A characterization. Two horses tied together, and then, like, the thought bubble, where they have the same thought bubble, but the little dots are going to their heads. The, mm-hmm. You know, they're separate heads, but it's like one... One cohesive mutual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just says WTF. <laughs> if that can happen, that'd be really great. <laughs> what made you want that? Is it because we recently... You decided that Dynamite Farmer was your favorite? I've, I, I Dynamite Farmer is... My f- favorite episode, other than Blue Steel, and I love Blue Steel because we we, we you, you know you clipped in interviews, you played the music while it was happening, and actually our 
upcoming next episode on our docket, I will be doing some more of that. I will be putting in some snippets. And I don't want to sound too self-absorbing or, 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 or I'm trying to toot my own horn. But every time I listen to the episode, I, I love the memory I had of that guy trying to ride his bike and got hit by that old woman. <laughs> I remember seeing it. And it was so fucking funny. And there's times I talk about shit. And I mentioned on here before, I'll talk about shit. And then reference it later when the mic's off. And then Erica would be like, wait, that happened? You know, I'm like, yeah, that totally fucking happened. I was there. That happened. What are you talking about? The guy that was sitting on the side of the road holding his poor little helmet and his, his like, really expensive... 10-speed bike or whatever, Tour de France bike, uh-huh. oh, was wedged the lady... into the car, and the old lady fucking hit him. Uh-huh. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> I, was at, I was at the stoplight, and I'm like, are you fucking shitting me? And then for some reason, this was before we even thought of me. This is like before we got married, you know? Mm-hmm. Like when it was a video store there. Yeah. And I remember looking at it like, I bet you he just got off of cocaine. Yeah. And this was the the first day of the rest of his life. And he got fucking hit by Ruth. <laughs> and then you, you said on there, you're like, he's probably dead now from an overdose. I'm like, yeah, 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 he probably is. He's that, That's it. He really put he really gave it a, a good college try. And this is what life gave him. So he says, said, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to get a hooker. And then now he's fucking dead. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Who did we see today at the gas station? Okay. <laughs> okay. This just hit me. Sorry. Off topic. But... I know we're keeping this episode going, and I really appreciate all of you snuggle buddies hanging in there. Yeah. Thanks for waiting till the last minute. We really want you to keep listening so you can hear Amelia's awesome story. Oh, it's so great. Oh, and Amelia, by the way, before I even get into anything, I'm going to go on Duolingo and start learning French. So, me, you, and Erica, we could just have conversations willy nilly. <laughs> we don't have to worry about. Any accents or any language barriers, we'll do it. I'll do it. I have it downloaded on my tablet. I know you do. I'm going to do it. I took two years of French. Don't remember any of it. Anyway, what was I saying? Who do we see at the gas station? Okay. So I saw the woman who got pulled out of the car on um, the Netflix show Dope, Season 2, Episode 2. When um, they got pulled over in the parking lot... And all the sheriffs, the the, the SWAT team, or the mm-hmm. drug enforcement team. In front team, of your store. In front of my store. <laughs> pulled her out of the car. She's like, what's going on, sir? Yeah, I saw her too and her face wasn't blurred out. It wasn't blurred out. Did you see her hair? <laughs> uh-huh. That was her. Yeah. That was fucking her. I could tell. And I got, so I got out to pump the gas because I'm a gentleman. And I was like, Erica, look, look, look. Don't look. Look now, but don't look. Look, but don't look. You see her? She's the chick yeah, he was whispering like she and could it, hear us. And then she was like, what? And I said, they pulled her out of the car. And you looked at me and you went, oh. <laughs> And I remember pumping the gas. I didn't see you, but I'm like, she's fucking staring at her right now. I'm I was, certain. kind of. You were kind of, you were, were you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Giving her the hairy eyeball. I was watching her, like, take her cane and put it on top of her car stuff. She had a cane. Yeah. She's a meth dealer. <laughs> she had a cane and it didn't, it didn't start with co. That was not... Cocaine's a drug. Yeah, I know. You, you, you inhale. Yeah, your trendy habit. I'm aware. I know what cocaine is. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Thanks once again to all of you guys for listening. Thanks to our patrons. 
Your support means so much to us. We can't thank you enough. And um, I guess for now, stay safe and we'll see you in two weeks. And here's Amelia's fantastic Snuggle Bunny story. Thank you, Amelia. A lightning cracked near the little cabin. The flash of light gave enough time to the little boy to see how much of the blood of his parents have painted the wall of the living room. Mommy. Daddy. Shivering, the little boy tried to sit still, hide in the darkest place he could have found. Between the corner of the room and the library, he swallowed his tears. He heard footsteps. They are coming closer. He stopped spreading. The hair coming through his mouth was too loud. The footsteps are in the room. What noise were coming from the carpet soaking blood. And then, nothing. Only the pouring rain against the window of the little cabin. The little boy heard a noise that he never heard before. He panics. What was that? Another lightning strike. At the light of it, he sees his little sister floating in the air, her hands at her neck, her eyes. So big. No, so fearful. Please stop. So, let it go. Empty. He heard the now lifeless body of his precious little sister drop on the floor. The monster laughed. A genuine, joyful laugh. The wet step left with the men still laughing. The home is now empty. Empty of life. Even the little boy was dead deep down inside of him. The only thing that was still living inside of him was the laugh of the monster vibrating in his head. The boy spent two days without moving of his corner. After that time, he found a bit of life force to move. The blood in the carpet was still a bit wet. On his left, his father. At least what was left of him. He looked like a Picasso. A lot of pieces at the wrong place. A bouquet of fingers and toes packed in his mouth. One of his eyes was dug out and stabbed on the top of his penis with a long nail. The little boy walks toward the kitchen. His mother was naked, lie on the table. Her legs were crooked. And the blood that came out of her vagina and anus created a crimson pool underneath the table. He remember hearing her scream while he was raping her. That voice that, that used to sing lullaby was now begging of agony. Back to the living room. The cops was his little sister still laying there. Under a stiff purple arm was her favorite plush that she held until her last breath. She probably hoped that it could save her since her big brother wasn't to do anything. The new orphan picked up the toy cover of dry blood and tears. The boy will find the monster. It will make him regret that to not have killed him. Not for his family, but what he has murdered inside of himself. His dream, his smile, his feelings. Billy walked out the house, the deep love still echoing in his head, and his little sister's stained bunny plush still tied in his hand. He will find him. Dude, we have got to lay off of Canada for a while. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 